Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland this week. This time on Nerdcast, we're bringing together the sharp minds of our White House team and our trade team to help you understand what's happening with a looming trade war with Mexico. Plus, the president scored surprising wins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan in 2016. This time, he's shooting for some surprising blue states in 2020. We'll tell you which ones they are. As always, we're taping this on Thursday. That's June 6th, so it's all up to date until then. So let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. In the studio, Anita Kumar from our Politico White House team. Hey, Anita. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for coming back. And on the line from Miami, a first-time Nerdcast rookie, Sabrina Rodriguez. Hi, Charlie. Welcome, Sabrina. <laughs> Thanks for having me. My understanding is that you're joining us on your day off. Is that really true? I am. I'm heading on vacation later today. You are such a gamer. Are <laughs> wow, you going that's anywhere? impressive. Yeah, you going anywhere good? <laughs> that's commitment to the tariff war, and I'm heading to Puerto Rico. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I hope you are uh, finding a way to bury that in your expense report. Somehow, the uh, the vacation? We'll right? see. I'll, I'll have a chat with you <laughs> next week. Okay, so time for our first data point today. $17 billion. That's $17 billion. One estimate for the cost to businesses and consumers of a new round of tariffs the president is threatening, this time on our neighbor to the south, Mexico. So let's get everybody up to speed first, Sabrina. For our listeners uh, who haven't been following the twists and turns of what's been going on, what are these threatened tariffs all about? Can you give us sort of a broad overview? These tariffs blindsided a lot of people that follow trade closely. So this was not something that was necessarily a long time coming. Um, there was a lot of goodwill going on between the three countries because Trump had lifted other controversial tariffs that he had on Mexico and Canada. And the same day that there was a lot of movement on his new USMCA um, trade pact was the exact same day that he decided that he was going to threaten these new tariffs on Mexico. And it's a 5% tariff that would hit all Mexican goods. There hasn't been very much explanation about whether there would be exemptions. There hasn't been much explanation about what the logistics would look like. But it all comes down to immigration and to him prioritizing the issue at the border, um, which he considers a migration crisis. And really what he wants is to pressure Mexico into agreeing to accept the asylum seekers and keep them there and under a safe third country pact, which he's wanted for a long time. Um, but the idea here would be threatened with tariffs for them to finally agree to that. And that's all Mexican products? I mean, are we talking avocados, tequila, everything across the board? Everything. Right now, there has been no mention of whether there would be any kind of exemptions. So everything from our blue jeans to avocados to cars, 
you know, and, and car parts, for example. I mean, car parts cross the border seven to eight times before they end up in a car. So how would that even work? So, and that hasn't even been worked out yet? That has not. They haven't formally offered any kind of documents saying this is how we plan on imposing it. And it's on Monday that they would be doing it. Wow. You had this great look this week at how the leaders of Mexico and Canada are dealing with sort of the whiplash. And, and what I loved about that story was the uh, – I, I guess I just didn't uh, – I hadn't internalized how much of a surprise it was and how uh, folks were caught off guard by what the uh, president did. So can, can you take us back to a week ago? Uh, I, I mean at that point, I guess Mexico and Canada had just gotten some – uh, unequivocally good news on trade and and things seemed really promising. Yeah, last Thursday was an exciting day in North America. Um, even in the U.S., I mean, if you talk to business groups, they were excited. They thought there was all this momentum going for the new the USMCA to get passed this year. And I mean, there's still roadblocks in the U.S. Congress related to House Democrats, but there is this feeling of okay, no, we're all on the same page that we really want to get this done soon. And that morning, I mean, that morning at 8 in the morning, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, he had um, a press conference where he said, you know, I'm sure we're going to pass this agreement. I'm excited. There's a really good atmosphere right now um, in the region. And, you know, I and I look forward to this working out and I look forward to working with Trump on this. And that exact same afternoon... Trump decided to blow it up with two tweets. Yeah, and if I could just jump in here, um, the tweets actually came when Vice President Mike Pence was flying back from Ottawa. He had just met with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to sort of shake hands on this deal, right? An exciting day about the USMCA. And literally the tweets are coming while he's in the airplane flying back. So just from the White House, let me just tell you that Trump has, President Trump has threatened this for months, right? He's talked about this for months. But if you talk to any of his aides on Thursday, that day, they were telling us, oh, no, it might not happen. We're trying to talk him out of it. And they kind of pushed it off and said it's not going to happen. And then the tweet came out. So it clearly did happen. So it really took them by surprise. But I will say this week that I've, I've noticed a real shift in how the administration is talking about it. They are talking about it as if it's really going to happen on Monday. And so, Sabrina, in, in talking to your sources, what, what were their reactions as you called them uh, and uh, sort of took their temperature on the, pre- on the president's threat? I mean, in Mexico, it's uh, they've kind of they've kind of learned to navigate Trump's surprises in terms of the way they talk to you. So there's obviously the attitude of, you know, there's still a chance he's not going to do this. That's very everyone's caveat was, but he may not do this ultimately because he has threatened, for example, earlier this year, he threatened he was going to close the border. And then ultimately he ended up giving them a warning and saying, you know, a one year warning. Clearly it was not a year. (laughs) He's now threatening tariffs again. Um, But really the attitude was the shock, but also the, okay, we have to mobilize quickly. Um, the way that one person called it was, you know, our rapid response mode. They immediately were getting on the phones with each other, immediately were booking flights. Uh, the foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, he came on Friday, even though Pompeo was not here, even though Trump was going to be traveling, even though he knew that he would not be having any formal sit-downs with um, the Trump administration, he was already in here trying to have informal chats with different administration officials and within the Mexican government to strategize a game plan for how they were going to handle the meetings this week. And how about our neighbors to the north, uh, the Canadians? How have they been responding and, and reacting? 
So they, I mean, they have their own playbook, which is part of that story of, you know, Mexico and Canada have been working together and they've realized, you know, they have a very unpredictable neighbor. So they've created an informal alliance. They've also created it with um, certain influential lawmakers, Chuck Grassley being a huge influence in all of this, where they've all kind of coordinated to work around Trump when possible. And for Canada right now, you know, publicly they're saying we're staying out of this. This is a bilateral issue. But Canada's also concerned because they really want to get the USMCA behind them. So imposing these tariffs would really make it impossible for that to pass. So, Anita, you have a front row seat to all of this as it unfolds. I mean, is is this a work of strategic genius with a plan or uh, is the president just winging it with all this? Well, I can't really judge, but I can just tell you what I've seen, which is, you know, the thing I said before, which is the staff was not prepared. It was clear that his staff not only had not fully realized what his decision was going to be, but what weren't prepared to explain it, weren't ex- prepared to explain it to reporters and to the public, but also to Mexico, and to actually say, provide details on how this would work, as Sabrina mentioned earlier. It, they haven't provided details. They've provided sort of the percentages and some dates, but they haven't said how this would work. Um, the acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, had a uh, an event with uh, reporters that day, that night, very late that night, to try to explain it. And when he was asked multiple times, what does Mexico have to do to avoid this, to push this off? Um, he named some things, but he didn't actually have any specific numbers. So if you're asking someone to do something, you might want to have like an actual specific number, you know, the goalpost, the the goal, what's your goal? If they meet that goal, they don't have to do it, but they weren't able to provide that goal. What they've said is that they want them to, you know, look at these criminal gangs, criminal organizations that are helping people come over the border, secure the Mexico-Guatemala border, um, work on keeping people that want asylum in Mexico before they come to the United States. All are uh, very vague without specific numbers beside them. And Anita, how is this coloring uh, the president's trip abroad? I I know personally, I I found it really jarring that on, on this day, which to me is among the most sacred of American days, you know, D-Day, the president, you know, he's about to go to Normandy um, and he opens up with a, a tweet railing against the Dems on trade. And uh, I mean, so how, how is this affecting his, his trip overseas? Well, we are used to President Trump engaging in domestic policy when he's on foreign trips. I mean, that is pretty normal. I will say that this week has seemed even more so. Um, He's engaged fully on this uh, these Mexico talks, but also on a variety of other things that he's just randomly commenting on and tweeting. Um, you know, obviously, he's had a press conference, so he's answered some questions. But I mean, it, it's, you know, it's so much. It's so much engaged on this. You know, it was really telling yesterday. Um, the Mexican officials were at Mexican officials were at the White House to meet with Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo and some other officials about this. The talks continue um, today, Thursday. Um, we were waiting at the White House because we had thought someone might come out and talk to us about what was going on. It was a 90-minute meeting. Uh, we thought the vice president's office might say something. How we found out that it was over and what was happening is because the president tweeted. <laughs> so um, he is fully engaged. He cannot uh, sort of stop dealing with this issue while he's there, and he sort of wants to be the one that's out there talking about it. But how many people in the White House are in the circle, in the know on this? Or is it just the president, 
you know, flying by the seat of his pants, going by gut the entire time. I feel like it's very, very tight. Um, You know, sometimes you hear from different people about things and there's leaks here and there. And he's, uh, you know, from Capitol Hill or from different agencies or departments. And I feel like this one, they were really tight, even with a lot of the people that I know that sort of get readouts and are very involved in immigration, for example, since this is about immigration, very tight. They did not hear exactly what happened at the meetings yesterday. And I do feel like there are a lot of people People that are saying, hey, this is going to happen Monday because Trump's kind of made up his mind. Well, there's a lot of squeamishness on Capitol Hill uh, regarding the trade threats. I mean, what what is the White House view on that? That they think eventually their party, Senate Republicans in particular, are going to buckle and, and come back into the fold? Or how are they viewing that? They do feel like they're not that the that the a number of Republicans, they might talk about things and they might express some displeasure, but when it comes down to actually voting, if they do vote on something, that they won't they won't turn against the president. You've seen people on Capitol Hill, you've seen members of Congress, Republicans split on this, right? You saw Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, saying mm, there's not a lot of uh, support for tariffs. But then you saw the leader in the House, the the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, saying basically he's on the same page with the president. So the, the party is split and the president feels like when it gets to that point, if it gets to that point where Congress might vote or do something, that he'll have enough Republicans on his side. What will you be watching over the next few days or or weeks for signs of where all of this is heading? You know, the biggest thing is paying attention to Trump to some extent. I think we all recognize that Trump's tweets are unpredictable and that what Trump tweets does not necessarily mean that something's going to happen. But from Mexico's point of view, I mean, I'm paying attention to my conversations with these officials. And right now, those conversations are really inconclusive. They want to be optimistic. They want to expect that this isn't going to happen. But when you really press down on them and ask them, they don't know. They have no idea. And they've had all these meetings with administration officials. And these administration officials have actually sympathized with them to a certain extent. Uh, One official told me, the Mexican undersecretary for North America, he talked to me about his meeting with a U.S. trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, which it's been widely reported that Lighthizer is not happy about this. Lighthizer does not think that this is a good move, especially for USMCA. And Lighthizer told him, you know, you have to do what the president wants. This is what the president wants. And he really needs you to address this. But also it would be really sad to see Mexico retaliate. Um, So I think the biggest thing to follow is ultimately, will they do this on Monday? And if they do this on Monday, how badly is Mexico going to retaliate? Because it's it's no question. I mean, business leaders across the country, Wall Street is saying this is not good for the U.S. economy. And if Mexico retaliates, which it's expected to do so, that will be bad for the U.S. economy. And I mean, the president often responds to that. And what is the uh, what, what's the chatter about the, what the Mexican response might look like? I mean, right now it's waiting for this conversation this afternoon. They were originally saying, you know, if we don't have something on Wednesday, we will tell you what the retaliation is on Thursday. And they came back yesterday saying, just kidding. Actually, we're (laughs) going to talk more tomorrow and then we'll let you know maybe then. Um, The Mexican president himself really just wants to put this behind him because his focus is on domestic issues. All right. Uh, Well, Sabrina, thank you so much for uh, taking out time from uh, your pre-vacation to uh, join us here on Nerdcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to get past the rookie experience. And was it everything you dreamed it would be as a uh, young journalist, you know, as you were growing up and moving through the system? I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you, you thought a lot about what it would be like to be on Nerdcast. <laughs> it was everything and more. <laughs> <laughs> glad we could uh, meet the uh, standard. Thanks again. Thanks. 
And Anita, it's always great to see you. Thanks so much for taking out time. I know things are uh, crazy in your shop these days. Sure. Thanks so much for having me back. And listeners, if you're interested in learning more uh, about the uh, looming trade wars, uh, I want to make a quick plug for a new Politico podcast. It's called Global Translations, and it tackles big global problems that don't respect political borders. First topic, trade. To what degree is there a method behind the apparent madness on the U.S. strategy? And the truth is it always or almost always comes back to China. Host Louisa Savage and Politico chief economic correspondent Ben White will pick it all apart. Check it out wherever you're listening to this show. Search for Global Translations. On to our next data point, which is 15. It's been 15 years since a Republican presidential candidate carried Nevada or New Mexico. And it's been 19 years since a Republican won in New Hampshire. So why the heck is the president's reelection campaign staffing up in those places? Politico National political writer Alex Eisenstadt can answer that question. Alex, thanks for being here. Hey, Charlie. So how about that question? Why the early investment in states that are seen by many as kind of a reach for a Republican presidential candidate and especially a candidate like Donald Trump? Well, well, talking to Trump advisors, there's really two main answers to that question. One is, is that they can. They have the luxury of time. Uh, Trump doesn't really have a primary challenger at this point. He's got a ton of money in the bank. And so he and his campaign really have the ability to organize all over the country, not just in traditional swing states, but also in states that are seen as more of a reach. But there's also a second reason uh, for this. And and this this one might raise some alarms with Republicans. But if you look at Trump's map right now, he's trailing uh, in his own polling in some of the states that really propelled him to the White House, particularly those in, in the Rust Belt, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania uh, are, are sort of problems for him at this point. And so uh, his strategists believe that they want to see what kind of opportunities uh, they can have elsewhere. Because look, what, what their point is, is that you don't necessarily want to have one pathway to 270 votes. You want to create multiple pathways uh, to winning the White House again. And it, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I mentioned in our open uh, earlier that um, a lot of people don't give Trump much of a chance in the three key right. industrial Rust Belt states that he won, which really blew up the electoral map in 2016. That being uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, which a Republican nominee hadn't won since 1988, and Wisconsin, which a Republican nominee hadn't won since 1984. So is he in trouble in those states? Well, it's a good question. And 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 one thing that's really important to point out is uh, the Trump campaign, they've tried to keep this poll under wraps but recently, but they, they, they conducted the 17-state polling project. And they haven't, they've been kind of tight-lipped about the results of this poll. But it turns out in all three of those states, Trump is, is trailing Joe Biden in, in a potential uh, general election matchup. And so, uh, and in some states, fairly, some of them fairly significantly, I understand. And so there's definitely some concern about all of those states. And, and, and those results actually align very much with public polling we're seeing, which shows Trump trailing as well. So we've talked a little bit about the the Trump weakness, but there there's kind of a counterintuitive thread in, in some of your reporting about Hispanic voters and and the level of support 
uh, Trump is drawing from Hispanic voters. Is that, is that really a thing? Well, so, again, this is something that came out. And there's going to be a high bar for persuasion here. <laughs> right. Well, th- so this is another thing that came out of this 17-state polling project, which is that they found that across the southern portion of the country, Trump's support among Hispanic voters has, this is what the Trump people say, has increased uh, since 2016. And so I've pressed them on, well, why this is, because as you can imagine, there's some skepticism about that. And what their answer is, is that uh, Hispanics who are living here in this country, particularly those who are sort of multi-generational, who've lived here for a long time, uh, they say that they like what the president has has done on immigration and that they like uh, sort of his crackdown on illegal immigration because they say that people who are living in the country legally want to ensure that other people are entering the country legally. And so that's sort of the point that they are uh, making. As far as New Mexico, which is one of the sort of several states that uh, you mentioned that the Trump campaign is trying to build into, part of their focus on that emanates from a rally that the president did early this year in El Paso, Texas, which is just across the border from, from New Mexico, of course. And what they found is that a large number of the people who registered for this rally online were actually Hispanics who reside in southern New Mexico. And so these, this poll and this rally may not be strong data points necessarily to suggest that Trump can play in either state, but they're what the Trump campaign is relying on at this point. That is super fascinating. I, I never would have guessed that. It's also, as you, as you know, as a total garbage data point. So they're arguing it's that because... It's a self-selected <laughs> group of people who are re- registering <laughs> Of people showed up in a different state right. uh, that were from New Mexico that may be Trump supporters. They can carry a state in which Republicans have been getting blasted in in, in recent uh, election cycles. Right. And those people, of course, are from the Republican part of New Mexico. You know, I mean, that is like the the uh, eastern part of the state is is sort of the the you know the the right. white little Texas part of the state. But uh, I digress here. Okay, so <laughs> obviously I've I've outed myself as a big skeptic of. I can uh, tell the, how you feel about the situation. <laughs> no, I mean, like I, I'm a, I'm somebody who thinks that Demo- uh, at least the Democrats I know have no idea how close Trump is to winning re-election. Like they assume that there's no way the president can win a second term, which is in my mind, crazy thinking. Like right. The president is definitely in the hunt for a second term. Right. But I find some of the arguments that the re-election campaign is making to be uh, a little bit non-persuasive. So it's smart, obviously, to have a backup plan. Right. And you've reported a lot about of those states. But the more I hear about how uh, expansive the backup plan is, the more it makes me doubt it. Because... As you've reported before, Trump uh, campaign officials have told you privately they're looking at Virginia and Colorado, uh, maybe some other places. And all of these places have a recent history, not only of rejecting President Trump fairly thoroughly in 2016, but also rejecting Republican candidates pretty thoroughly over the last decade and rejecting them overwhelmingly in 2018, largely because of Donald Trump. Right. And it's not just New Mexico that they're looking at. Look, I mean, we haven't seen a tremendous, just to be clear, they haven't invested that much in New Mexico yet, at least. But you look at New Hampshire, 
The, the Trump campaign already has a half dozen people in New Hampshire. Well, to your point, in New Hampshire in 2018, Republicans lost both state legislative chambers in New Hampshire. You go to Nevada, uh, the Trump campaign has several staffers on the ground in Nevada, and Republicans were similarly wiped out in that state. They lost the governor's race. They, uh, Dean Heller, the Republican senator, lost re-election. So you actually see them putting money uh, into these states in some instances, and that's it really is what they are are gambling on to some extent. I'm going to totally put you on the spot right now. Lightning round question. If you had to say of those blue states that we've talked about that the Trump people are looking at, what is the one that you think is most likely to flip and maybe vote for Trump in 2020? Uh, just uh, probably New Hampshire, uh, if, if one were to guess just how close it was last time. You know, one of the things that the Trump people made the point about in New Hampshire is that if you go back to 2016, few people remember this, but he lost the state very narrowly, of course. And at the time, Kelly Ayotte was running for re-election and she withdrew her support for President Trump uh, after the Access Hollywood video came out and was critical of him. At the same time, you had a, a Republican Party apparatus in the state led by Jennifer Horn that was not terribly supportive of the president. Of course, Jennifer Horn is now working for Bill Weld, who's <laughs> primarying uh, Donald Trump. And so what the Trump people may say is that, look, you are going to have a party, a local apparatus in New Hampshire that's far more supportive of the president this time around than in 2016. So I'd, I'd have to say New Hampshire. I, I'm with you on that. I would bet New Hampshire too, given a lot of people don't know that was a 47-46 state in, in 2016. Right. Plus it also has this really weird history of careening back and right. forth from election cycle to election cycle. You know, uh, Republican landslide, Democratic right. landslide, back and forth and back and forth. So that'll be interesting. So uh, let me just turn to the Democratic side right now in terms of what you're hearing about the Democratic take on on these Trump theories. Right. Uh, are, are they frightened by the uh, the data point about the El Paso rally? I mean, Absolutely are they frightened not. about losing Abs Minnesota? Absolutely not. They, they in, in fact, in, in talking to the Democratic National Committee about this, they made it very clear that they think this is a sign of weakness on the part of Trump, that he's looking to these states. And they say, look, his path to 270 otherwise must be uh, narrowing not widening if he's looking to these states. And so uh, that's really their point. And, and they also make the point that, that you uh, made earlier, which is that, look, in, in these states, uh, the president uh, really the Republicans lost in many cases because Democrats successfully tied Republican candidates to the president. So uh, they don't see a whole lot of evidence to suggest that Trump can really play in, in those states. And do they see any states that they think they'll peel away from Trump? Like what, what would rank high on their list? Well, clearly they are going to be uh, – Democrats are, are going to be really focused on Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe Pennsylvania at the top of that, that list. Right now, the Rust Belt seems to be getting a, a, a lot of attention. Uh, but I think you might see Democrats play in North Carolina. Uh, there was some public polling that was released this week that uh, showed Trump struggling there. And, and you might even see Arizona uh, as, as being a state that – um, Democrats focus on. Of course, there's always going to be discussion of Texas. As you and I know, that's sort of something that comes up every four years. Democrats want to play there, but it doesn't really end up happening. Uh, but there certainly are a number of states that were red in 2016 that Democrats want to play in this time around. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, let me ask you about something that I think probably a lot of our listeners might have run across, especially the ones that inclined towards being political junkies. That poll that came out yesterday from Quinnipiac showing yeah. Biden up on Trump by four points in Texas of all places. Like, what's the takeaway there? What do you make of a, a poll number like that? Put that in context for somebody 
who, you know, is sort of a casual political ob- observer, follows it pretty closely, knows Texas is pretty conservative, but isn't following it like minute by minute. Like how serious should they take that poll? Um, look, Texas is clearly becoming less conservative. And, and you talk to a lot of senior Republicans and they'll tell you that over time um, they've become more concerned about the state and that it, that it has changed. But most people don't see it changing enough so that it will somehow flip in the next election. It, it, maybe that's something that happens down the road, but the changes in the state don't seem to be happening rapidly enough. Most people think that that Democrats would be able to to carry the state. Uh, that said, uh, there was some polling that uh, some Republican groups did early on that that perhaps suggests that if Beto O'Rourke were the Democratic nominee, Texas could be put in play. But uh, you you don't necessarily hear Texas about as being a real point of concern for the Trump campaign at this point. Right. Uh, well, Alex, thank you for taking out so much time. I uh, really appreciate it. It's always great to uh, talk some pure politics with you. Sure thing. A big thanks for tuning in. We've got a very special guest who's going to read the credits this week. Hey, this is Scott Bland from upstate New York. Longtime listener, first time caller. The Nerdcast is produced by Jenny Ahmed. Its executive producer is Dave Shaw. The illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. That guy sounds like a dork. <laughs>